So for the first time this series, it's not a guest house we're sitting outside of, it's actually my house. We're sitting in my driveway, Killian has just called in, and we're about to head into town to chat with this week's guest, Zlata Filipovich, in the second captain studio. Killian, how are you getting on? Richie, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Yeah, Zlata's home currently has a four and a half year old living there, and like most kids that age, they tend not to sit there quietly for long spells, so that house is off limits to us for this one. So a lot of people may not know about Zlata or her story, but the story of her childhood is it's really, really incredible. She grew up in Sarajevo in Bosnia as she was an only child in the 80s and 90s, and, and she had what sounded like a really normal, lovely life up until shortly after her 11th birthday when the Balkans War reached her hometown and then the city of Sarajevo came under siege. Now, like a lot of kids her age... At the time, Zlata would have been keeping a diary before the war broke out and entries that would have been up until that point all about the usual kids stuff, birthday parties, piano lessons, what was going on in school. They morphed into page after page about living in the daily realities of war. So food shortages, no electricity or running water at times and living with the constant sound of gunfire and shelling of the city. And Rich, I think what's really extraordinary about Zlata's story is that that diary that she kept was the exact reason she and her parents mm. were able to get out of the city after almost almost two years because a French publisher published a book it became this international bestseller and like a real like media phenomenon everywhere all over the world particularly in the United States and she was able to start a new life in Paris and, and eventually settle in Ireland yeah and it feels like a really good time to speak to her now given how her situation is being mirrored um, tragically in both Ukraine and particularly in Gaza at the moment where so much of the news coverage is focused on the horrendous extent to which children are suffering uh, but equally I think it's important to say just a word to those of you who are finding the topic of children and war all too overwhelming understandably maybe this conversation isn't for you Mm. but before we make our way over to the studio i'm delighted to say that episode is brought to you by now now we're coming towards the end of the year which means that whether you're a football fan like me or you're a rugby fan like producer Mm -hmm. killian here next to me or indeed both there's so many brilliant brilliant matches to look forward to and we're now offering two great sports memberships featuring sky sports and tnt sports and premier sports you'll be able to watch them all this Saturday in the Premier League, for example, Man City take on Liverpool, which if I was someone to use lazy sports cliches, I might call this a top-of-the-table <laughs> clash. Next weekend, Man City take on Tottenham, which I could say the very same thing about. And my new v Chelsea is coming up soon, which should also be a cracker. Plus, you'll be able to watch the start of this year's Champions Cup season with Lenza heading to La Rochelle and Munster playing Exeter Chiefs. So whether it's for a day or for a month, now has the membership for you. So let's head into town to meet this week's guest, Zlata Filipovich. Zlata, you're very welcome. Thank you. Thanks a million for joining us. Can I ask you first, like we're going to be asking about a time in your life which was as traumatic as things can get for a child. How were you coming into this chat? I don't kind of think about it all the time on a daily basis, even though, you know, the war has been a massively formative part of who I am. Um, it's. I just did a talk. I just came back and I did a little talk at the Dingle Literary Festival. And every time 
I kind of start go- talking about it. I really kind of get into it, but I, I don't kind of carry it on a daily basis at, on the surface. But I guess when I come in and when I start talking about it, I do really, truly kind of inhabit it. And each time I really, really, truly feel about feel it, even though I've spoken about it a good bit since the age of 13. And is there an impact after it? I know sometimes when I when people can recall traumatic experiences, there's a personal toll. Mm. Um, I think. To an extent, when I originally started talking about it, it was really soon after, you Mm. know, it was part of me coming out of the war was closely tied into talking about the war. And at that time, the war was still very much going on for everybody that stayed behind, for my you know, grandparents, for my best friend, for all the neighbors that kind of formed themselves, this unit that formed itself during the war. So I felt very much, you know, a kind of a sense of responsibility because people were listening to me and asking me questions and wanted to hear from me. And I was 13, but, you know, which is a strange thing to Mm -hmm. suddenly have in front of you. But on the other hand, you know, people wanted to know and I and they were willing to listen. And I could talk and I could talk for all those that stayed behind. So I think, you know, I've met people like who are, say, Holocaust survivors. And for a lot of them, they just shut that part of their life off entirely. And it was only kind of later on in their lives when they were sort of realizing that they were life was going on and they were entering into an elderly age and suddenly became very aware of their mortality and their passing. That's when they realized, oh God, I have to talk because if I don't talk before I die, these stories will not live on or the lessons or these experiences or these truths. So mine was different, you know, so I started talking immediately. So maybe part of my own processing of it happened immediately afterwards, age 13. But I don't think it takes at all. I, I, I just kind of bring it more to the surface. I say hi to it, I recognize it. And then, you know, it settles back in until the next recall. There's a lot of coverage in the news at the moment, um, focusing on children who are currently experiencing conflict and, and war. Does that have an impact? It's interesting, the sort of the recent um, Gaza experience, I've I found it maybe just, which is not usually like me, because I'm happy to kind of go in and feel and connect. Um, and this one has just felt so too much in a way for me. Um, I was thinking, you know, with the Ukrainian war starting last year, that really got me, you know. I think because it's sort of it looked the same. It was literally the same images, you know, the cities, the architecture in the city was quite similar to where I've come from. So I literally felt like here is a repeat again. It's just that the quality of the images is now in 4K and, you know, people's clothes are newer but it felt very similar it just the world was again listening again the fact that it's a European kind of country it it was a different response we have to admit that we are like that in the media does kind of respond in the same way that they responded to the Bosnian conflict more than they even though we felt incredibly alone and forgotten the coverage was so much bigger than a lot of other conflicts that happen in the world but the recent events are just devastating I think I just 
I didn't have more in me. I mean, I'm I'm seeing it, I'm recognizing, but I'm for the first time a little bit protecting myself. And then I feel guilty that I'm protecting myself and I'm not doing the usual thing, which is head on, heart on, going kind of straight into it. So it just feels it just feels a kind of defeating that it's happening again and that we are, you know, people are going out in the streets again and they're protesting again. And is that going to result in anything? And it's just this sort of sense of powerlessness. And it's been interesting as well, like with the Ukrainian conflict, and I guess this, I'm now living in a country that's responding. You know, originally my memories as I was on the side of what people were responding to. Now I'm on the side of you know, this sense of powerlessness. So I'm feeling like the other side of the coin, also being older, you know, being a mother myself now, seeing these images, I'm no longer the child, I'm seeing the images of children. The sense of, you know, that these kids are dying and losing their loved ones, their childhoods, their hopes, their futures, you know, and it just feels kind of too much this time around for me personally a little bit. Really, yeah. Mm. And it's strange. I've not, I've not felt like this before. So I don't know whether I've kind of, I've carried the Ukrainian thing in me, you know, that was from last year, um, the Ukrainian war and, and, and the fact that, again, it keeps on going, keeps on going. And this just feels the scale of this is unreal. You know, these 11,000 people, four and a half thousand children was kind of the latest numbers I, I, I had, but in such a short space of time. Um, where do you put it? In you. Yeah, it, it, it's overwhelming, isn't it? Mm. Your own story. Um, you made a decision a few months before your 11th birthday to start writing a diary, um, which knowing what we know now is just one of those decisions that you'd wonder how life would have been if you had never made that decision. What was life like before the war broke out for you? I actually started another one, which no one should ever be exposed to when I was about 10. Okay, tell me uh, about that first. (laughs) So that was basically, I had, I'm an only child, so um, I kind of had to learn to fill my own kind of time and, and I guess kind of had more of that sort of internal life or had to figure out how not to be bored but I also as a result really looked up to sort of slightly older um, you know friends who so there I had this friend Martina who's still a very good friend who's three years older than me and Martina was kind of like when Martina liked new kids on the block I had to like new kids on the block and Martina got this sweatshirt I had to get that same set sweatshirt so Martina started writing a diary and I thought aha uh-huh, okay so that's the thing to do and I'd also read the diary of Anne Frank. I read the diary of Adrian Mole, which was a sort of fictional mm. um, 80s kind of young teenage boy's diary. And that was really funny. I loved I, I like eight all the books that, that um, Sue Townsend wrote. And later on, what I took from Anne Frank's diary was this idea that this was a sort of a friend, somebody you could talk to. It's this kind of giving it a name and creating a friend Mm. out of it, a kind of a personality. Um, So that's where I started. But really, like that first one, I just got one of those like notebooks that was, you know, purple and had teddy bears on it or whatever. And it had those kind of predefined spaces. Like usually you'd be writing what meetings you have that day. But with me, it was like literally pages and pages of everyday writing. Everything's okay. Okay. Everything's okay. Everything's okay. You're ten. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this, you know, or and then sometimes like, oh, going to a birthday party this Saturday, and then birthday party happened. Everything's okay. So I mean, it's it was really just for me. 
it was kind of the idea that I would have something of mine, a little object that I could put sort of stickers onto and kind of curate. Um, and also, I guess, you know, maybe think about like one day this would be so funny to read because I thought the things that I would be writing in there would be normal teenage, early preteen things, you know, so school and girl, you know, friends and birthday parties and going to piano lessons. And, you know, so it was, yeah, I thought that's what it was going to be. And I thought that that's what I would continue writing about. There are early entries where you are writing about those things, birthday parties and school and, and regular 10 year old, 11 year old stuff. And and then there's kind of mentions of references to conflicts in other cities, you're aware that there's a kind of kind of a shifting tension in the air. Can you remember that time? Yeah, very much. It's it's. I think my memory is very. You know, when I speak to people my own age in Ireland who kind of think about like ninety one, ninety two, it's they don't really remember. I think as a result of the sort of the cut, the rupture, the before and after, mm. the war coming in. It's almost my kind of memories around that time are maybe stronger or, you know, more, you know, I've kept them more relevant or whatever way memory and works, you know, that that was really important to remember that. And uh, really kind of for me, the one of the sort of strongest Memories is my dad, who was working as a lawyer and always wore a suit and a tie because he had to go to the courts and everything. I came home one day from school and I found him in a uniform. He was, you know, not in the army, a terrible eyesight, but he was in the sort of reservist civil defense kind of thing. And I came home and he was in this, you know, blue, you know, very thick wool uniform there was a gun there there was a hat on him and it was just it was not my dad it was you know someone dressed up my dad into a combatant into you know and that's not my dad my dad's sweet and gentle and Mm -hmm. lawyer and can't see and loves reading history books you know so my mom was beside herself you know neighbors had gathered it was a really really shocking in a very kind of obvious visual way. Something was very different, something now the war was in our house, a uniform was in our house, you know, a gun was in our house. What was your understanding of it at the time? Like you're you're a parent now, we're both parents Mm. now. And you know that parental instinct to shield your kid from the realities of the world or Mm. some of the harsher realities. Was that possible? We were because it was on the news a lot. And I guess we were watching the news. I mean, this is, again, you know, late 80s, early 90s, you know, when kind of parental guidance was less sort of, you know, present on TV or awareness of that. Um, So it was happening. But also, you know, say Dubrovnik, where, you know, people go from Ireland on lovely holidays Mm. these days, was an important city in my own family's history. My parents got married there. Some very good family friend of ours was living there. When Dubrovnik was starting to be bombed, the, you know, we were really connected because this really close family friend of ours was there. And, you know, we ended up making a parcel of, you know, clothes and, you know, cute notebooks, stickers, you know, nice pen that we ended up sending to him so he could give it to a little girl who was a neighbor of his. So, you know, it was it was feeling close. It was we were aware. Um, 
And then the uniform was just, well, is that my dad now going into that thing we've been seeing on TV? Because nothing was happening yet in mm-hmm. Sarajevo. You know, it was also bigger than maybe what they could protect because it was everywhere. You'd go to school and someone would mention it. And so it was in the air. You mentioned there's a before and after. Describe the day when you knew war had arrived in Sarajevo. There was a day in April 1992. I remember my my aunt coming home uh, where she was working with my dad and she came she came from the hairdressers and she said, apparently war will start this, you know, there's there's going to be a lot of shooting happening this weekend. The war is starting this weekend, like a snowstorm or a hailstorm, you know. She what heard this mean? in the hairdressers. In the hairdressers, people were talking that something was maybe going to happen. So this weekend did come. There was suddenly gunshots. People were starting to gather. There were peaceful protests. These peaceful protesters were shot at. A young woman who was peacefully protesting was killed. You know, it was all being kind of live coverage on TV. We were told, don't go to school tomorrow. You know, it was just, this was the day, except I didn't know. And then it went into this other month, the whole of month of April. It was like, oh, it's okay, don't go to school, but things are okay and shops are open. And sometimes we're hearing gunshots, but sometimes we're not. And people are deciding to leave. Will I leave? Will me and mom leave? Will dad stay? Will all three of us stay? Will all three of us leave? You know, oh, but it can't happen, you know. So even when it starts happening, you're like, but it's not going to happen for a very long time. Were you, you know? involved in the should we stay and together? Should we separate and leave? Were yeah. you involved in those conversations? Because yeah. that's a lot for a kid to yeah. get the head round. That's an only child thing. A friend of mine very well described it about an only child. He said when they first had their first kid, it was the two of them and their daughter. And then the second child came and the daughter had to be kind of demoted from like management to kids. (laughs) And I guess I just ended up being in the management by being an only child. Um, And I just knew I didn't I didn't want to go. But there had been a number of attempts. We literally packed the bags and I was going to go stay with some friends who were leaving the next day to Slovenia. And halfway across the bridge, which is just in front of my house, I just broke down crying. I don't want to go. I'm, I, I, I don't. I just. I was eleven and a half, you know. So, so then we turned back, and you. Know, so they listened to me. They didn't. They didn't just send me to keep me safe. Um, and then second of May happened, and that's when the city fully shut down. That's when there was a tank in front of my house. That's the first time we spent a full night, full day and full night in the cellar in the basement of our house, because that's where you go. Apparently, as you learn, suddenly when the bombing starts, that's where you go. You go underground to hide. But after 2nd of May, you couldn't leave anymore. It was completely shut down. The city was completely shut down. And then you go, oh, should have left, maybe. But anyway, here we are now. And, you know, whatever decision is made, I think, you know, later on, you kind of find a way to, you know, incorporate it into your life. And, you know, it was maybe the right decision to stay because we both survived. All Sorry, all three of us survived, my parents and I. Spending time in a cellar, like, can you give us a description? What, what were the living conditions? Because you had to, at various points, deal with no running water, electricity might or might not be available, gas, food. The, all these things had to be rationed. What was it like living in that? Well, the cellar. So we lived, Sarajevo had a lot of these kind of, the building where we were in, it was built during the Austro-Hungarian time. So it's sort of like an apartment on top and on the sort of ground level were the offices. And then 
there was a sort of a cellar, which I hated going into. It was dark. It was, you know, as a kid, I, you know, I thought like monsters and witches lived down there. So it was a sort of just a not space, not a not a very inviting space for a child. Um, but then, you know, suddenly it had to become the most inviting space because that's where you could go and at least not be in a room full of large glass windows uh, that are looking straight onto the hills and hills is where the artillery was, where the snipers were. So that was, you know, but then after the 2nd of May, first the sort of post office was burned, so there were no telephones. Then slowly there started, you know, electricity cuts. So then we had to, you know, start eating everything that was in the fridge and the freezer. So there was a period of time where we ate incredibly well too much because we were trying not to let the food go to waste. But then then the water stopped coming. Then you try have to try and figure out, well, where do we go get water? There were these pumps in the city where you'd have to kind of walk for half an hour through the bombing and the snipers with sort of buckets and basins and whatever to try and go there, get some water and bring it home so you have some clean water. Then the next thing was because there was no food in the shops. First of all, people bought everything. Then whatever was left was looted. And then there was nothing you could buy. So whatever you had in the house is all you had. You know, and then this kind of incredible thing of of sharing also happens. You know, people when, when, and this is where I kind of say for the war was the worst of humanity, but also showed the best of humanity. So this sort of kindness and support also develops, even though the kind of circumstances are so stark and bleak and bare and cold. There's kind of humanity that also is very much circulating there too. That sense of community almost just kicked mm. in. Yeah. Yeah. But a community, you know, it's not even in a physical sort of sense, the ones that are close to you, but that formed itself as well. Our neighbours that we would have not even barely knew but we kind of suddenly they said, well, actually, our cellar is nicer. Do you want to try and kind of when the bombing starts, if you have time, if it's not too bad and not too close, come into our our basement, our cellar, because it was a bit nicer and there were more of them there. So then it was like, OK, well, let's play cards, you know, by the candlelight until it stops. As you said, this is obviously a time when communications are very different. So mobile phones, social media, Internet, all the things we have now weren't there. So that constant question of how, how is granny doing or, or how's granddad or the other people who aren't in your immediate circle. Is that an like an all consuming worry that is just constant or, or do you somehow just become used to that being the reality? Is that even possible? The There's definitely like the first time the kind of so initially it was kind of gunshots that were coming from the hills and then it started being these really incredibly loud and I still really don't like and I never will fireworks these extremely kind of loud sudden noises these shells that were falling um, explosions glass shattering screams from wherever it had fallen and whatever it did 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 do in the beginning it it was I literally probably cried every time I heard one it was so loud it was so scary and then you start adjusting, then you're like, oh, it feels like they're actually bombing maybe more the eastern part of the city now. So they're just kind of flying overhead and hearing the bombs fly overhead means that they're flown past you at least, you know. It's the ones you don't hear flying overhead are coming for you. 
So suddenly everything, it's kind of, you start adjusting to everything. You start adjusting to no water, no food, no electricity, you know, improvising life, you know, collecting rainwater because you need that to flush your toilet because how do you flush your toilet when there's no running water? And, you know, all these sort of things suddenly start, you know, emerging, improvising, figuring out, needing to get on, but also adjusting, adjusting, adjusting all the time. Now, the worry for, you know, grandparents, you know, or other family members or friends, again, the communication, you'd still hear it, you'd still hear when, you know, somebody that you know was killed or wounded or somebody that worked with mom or dad, or even though there were no phones and people were not really gathering to meet so much, but maybe someone would go to the market to try and you know, exchange cigarettes for some flour or somehow the information would be gathered and then come back and and things were shared. So, you know, the information was still happening, but not in that kind of immediate. And yeah, there was a lot of worry for my grandparents, you know, who lived like a 10 minute walk from our house, but it was across the bridge where the sniper was shooting and it was a dangerous crossing to, to make. And, you know, so all the time thinking, you know, when you're like, oh, I think they're bombing that part of town, which is where my aunt lives, you know, how are they? I don't know. Hopefully I'll find out tomorrow that they're okay. It's extraordinary listening to you Mm. describe that world. Mm. At the time, what were the conversations, I assume they were constant, about when and how this conflict would end? Mm. In it, and I don't, like, I know you know a lot of what's happened since, but... Mm. Back then, what was being said? Every night, if it was no shooting, the neighbours from the good cellar (laughs) would cross the courtyard and and go over the ladder and come into our house and we'd connect the radio and we would listen, listen to kind of foreign stations reporting on the war to find out what was happening. So whether it was like, you know, the French radio you know, former Yugoslav languages program, you know, so we could listen to what they were saying um, to see what's happening. So, you know, again, in the beginning, it's like, oh, I think they're going to sign a peace because you don't think it's going to go on for that long. They're signing a peace agreement. Perfect. It's all going to be done. It's all going to be finished. And then the ceasefire is broken. And then the next time they kind of, if there's another peace agreement signed, then the shooting will stop. And which is obviously I'm thinking now of Gaza, this need for a ceasefire, this call for a ceasefire, this, you know, but then it kind of gets broken. And it's almost sometimes worse when you bring your hopes up and you think something's good's going going to happen and then it doesn't happen. And then you fall, you sink even lower. So at some point I kind of remember thinking, I wish they weren't even saying any of this. Just, just, just let's just keep going like okay. this because the potential of the up which doesn't get realized, you know, There's brings you even crash is yeah. even even greater. So, you know, fluctuating, I guess, between hope like this has to end. I have it has to end. I want to see my friends. I want to go to school. I want to listen to music. I want to know what music is now in who's listening to what what are people wearing, you know, this sort of just desire for future for for life. You know, it has to happen. It has to happen. I mean, I don't know what it's based on hope, but that's just what I had. And at times periods of going, maybe this will never end. Maybe this will be like the Palestinian conflict that it keeps on going forever and ever and ever. And for, you know, and this is just a reality, This these protracted conflicts and needing to sometimes look into that and face that and accept that and then 
and then hope again. And But there was no way of indicating whether you'd wake up the next day, let alone what the, when this war would finish. So you just have to continue living in this suspended state, state surviving and trying to stay human too. Describe how you came to leave Sarajevo. This is, this is an amazing aspect of the story. There were these summer schools, you know, that was kind of like a nice way of not calling it a war school, you know, the summer schools. And it was in the kind of a basement of a local kind of community center. So it was just for like that local area. And a neighbor of ours uh, who was 18 volunteered to work there. You know, it was basically to have kids be kids and do nice kid-like things. Which in itself uh, is an amazing thing. Again, it's this kind of desire yeah. for, for life and humanity and, and remaining human. So she said she's going to go and teach there. You know, she's 18. She wants to also do something. Do I want to come and join? So, you know, they had like the dance group, but then there was no electricity, so they couldn't listen to music. So I don't know what they were dancing. I didn't join them. <laughs> I joined the, uh, you know, I joined, there was like, I don't know, computer. They were probably just like writing, you know, binary codes. And then I... Um, I, I joined the literary group and it was sort of drama and literary group um, because I always liked reading and writing and, you know, it was always a part of my life. So one day the teacher there asked, does anyone keep a diary? Because Audrey Hepburn, who was the Goodwill ambassador for UNICEF, was going to come to Sarajevo and they wanted to present her with a diary of a child from Sarajevo. And so I copied some parts of my diary didn't give them the original very cleverly. I gave it to to the teacher and then that was it. You know, it was just some parts for the first two months of the war, really, two, three months of the war. Um, so I didn't hear anything of it. I just but I continued writing my diary, you know, just for myself. It was only always ever for myself. Um, and a year later, somehow the kind of news came to our apartment that they selected a diary to be published and it was mine. I'm like, really? Like the thing from a year ago? And it was kind of done with a sort of a local kind of literary group and and they said there would be a book promotion. So that was really exciting because I got to kind of dress up a little bit into something and it was going to be held in a jazz club because jazz clubs are good, they're always underground. And there was an actress who was reading some parts of it and someone was playing the piano and the Bosnian television was there. But randomly, a a Spanish journalist was there as well, who somehow heard there was a book promotion happening of a child's diary. um, And he wandered in and spoke to me. And then he ended up going back to the Holiday Inn Hotel, which is where all the journalists were staying during the war. And he must have told them, guys, this sort of mad thing happened. And of course, the phrase was then coined, the Anne Frank of Sarajevo. And journalists started coming to my house you know literally I don't know how they knew where I lived but suddenly it was like hi we're from ABC News and you've been chosen as person of the week we'd like to interview you and you know I was like and the war is still going on at this point uh, yeah 100% and you're, you're the focus of a lot of immediate attention they all started coming literally it was like well the Japanese TV are in the living room waiting <laughs> whilst the French are filming you play the piano because you know it was also I guess I now see and realise you know we lived in this very, you know, European looking apartment. Mm. And, you know, I spoke some English and, you know, we had the piano. So we looked like the kind of your average, you know, middle class European family. Yet this was happening. Um, 
And I guess by the fact that these journalists were writing and these things were coming out in newspapers and in, you know, on TV, etc., around the world, um, there was a sort of suddenly an interest, I guess, from publishing companies. Oh, so is there more? Because this is only the first two, three months of the war. Did you continue writing? Is there is there more? Would you be interested in publishing? And at this stage, we had tried so hard. At this point, we were like, okay, it's fine. It's separate. If Zlata can get out on her own, if Zlata and my mom, you know, if the two of us can go and dad stays, let's do it. Let's just be okay. safe. And it was kind of a, but it was impossible to leave the city. And this was kind of an opportunity. Okay, you know, yeah, there is more because I continued writing more. But can you do something for us? Can you help me? Can you help us leave the city? And every publisher said no. I mean, there were these two Swiss guys who literally there was a tunnel that was dug underneath the airport runway. These two Swiss guys somehow traveled to Serbia from Serbia through Bosnia underneath the tunnel came into Sarajevo with a contract, a publishing contract saying, will you sign, you know, and we're like, well, can you get us out? They're like, we barely got in ourselves. And wow. we were like, sorry, you know, there's no there's no point to it unless there was this maybe going to be a way to get out. And then one of these French photojournalists, Alexandra uh, Boulin, and she said, well, there's this French publisher and he is extremely well connected with the French government and, you know, all the relevant people and who are, you know, the French battalions were part of the UN forces in Bosnia. They were in control of the airport. And she says, if anyone can help you, this guy can. So we went, well, we trusted Alexandra. So we said, OK, and gave them the diary. And uh, there was one attempt to get us out, which failed, which again, talking of those hopes and crashes, this one was awful. My mom after that said, don't worry, let's just leave it all. This is just, I can't handle this. You know, this is she too much. couldn't take the disappointment. No. Uh, and they came to get me that night. They said, you know, they want to bring you on the, to the TV building, which was a dangerous drive from my house, to put you live on French news you know, to talk about the fact that this attempt to get you out failed. And mom was like, no, leave her alone, leave everything alone. And I was like, well, maybe give it one more go. Maybe I'll just go. And I went and the French Minister of Defense live on the equivalent of nine o'clock news said, we will do everything in our power to get you out. And then two, three weeks later, the second attempt worked and we left. So we left only because age 10, I wanted to be cool like Martina and start writing a diary. And we left, the three of us, my mom and dad and me together, which is just was unheard of. 45 minutes later, you're in Italy. And then, you know, an hour and a half later, we're in Paris and it's Christmas. And so close, like, you know, so close, so far, you know, where we were, where what we'd come from was just like three hour flight from Paris and everything this world was experiencing, you know, it was mind melting. Do you have a sense of the lasting impact those years had on you? Like throughout your teenage years, a young adult life. Mm. I, I hope this story includes at some point you were given therapy or some kind of support to. Mm -mm. No, you're kidding. No. I sought it afterwards for different reasons, but not not in that kind of immediate sense. One thing that happened is I stopped and maybe that's connected. You'll know. Uh, I don't dream. I don't dream. I'd say my conscious is just like sitting very heavily on my subconscious. 
I dream maybe once a year. And I dreamt a lot during the war. I dreamt of things that I wanted. I dreamt of, you know, seeing my friends again. I dreamt of food. I dreamt of, you know, fun and, you know, being on a beach and all these things. But I dream almost never now. Um, and that's maybe an impact because it's definitely related to leaving I uh, I very much wanted to sort of just go to school and, you know, figure out what to do with my hair and, you know, which band I liked and which tribe I belonged to and get my Doc Martens in the 90s and, you know, go to gigs and all those things. And I, and I did, I, you know, I got to do all of them. I don't think I had like a mad adolescence that I, you know, people do have where I just kind of went a bit just go broke. For <laughs> yeah. Uh no, that didn't happen. You know, at that time I was still very much talking about this, you know, in a kind of being invited to go to like UNESCO conferences or, you know, meet presidents of countries or talk at, you know, so was that I, was that was that easy for you to do? Was it was it difficult? Was there a sense of obligation? Did you have a choice? Did um, you have at any point gone, guys, I'm done with talking? Um it didn't. Well, when we first left, we had no idea. We thought when the, the French publisher got us out, they got us out. You know, obviously they were getting, you know, a publishing deal out of it and we got to go out. And that's all we thought would happen. That's all we wanted. We thought, right, OK, so now we're in France. We need to figure out the whole immigrant refugee experience. But instead, what was there was a, a four month schedule of book promotion media commitments yeah which I didn't wow. realize so it was like you know straight away from the airport when we landed in Paris went to the hotel dropped bags and then again I was on the kind of French eight o'clock nine o'clock whatever the important ones are news because now I had arrived you know and, and people in France which I didn't realize had followed this story um so I didn't realize this was there, but this this was, you know, this was part of it as well. And it was also like, again, that thing people wanted to hear from me and I had an opportunity to talk and I could talk for my best friend that stayed behind and her fault was that she didn't keep a diary. Her mm. her choice was that she was drawing. Uh, I could talk for my grandparents. I could talk for this community, these these neighbors who we left behind that morning um, that had like a three-year-old and a, you know, 85-year-old. I could talk for the city. I could talk because there was an opportunity. People wanted to hear. I could talk. I was given a microphone, you know, sort of, you know, figuratively in a kind of and really, and uh, and people would listen, and maybe that's something that I could do for them for this to stop because we didn't know when it would stop. Um, it's so much to take on as a 13, 14 year old. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't think. I think it's almost. I think you know, you yeah. you see that maybe now, as you know, but at that time, I just kind of was rolling with it, and okay. I think that's. I think as a kid, anyway, you kind of don't think about it too much it's just like oh this is what we're doing okay let's just kind of let me keep going um but I really just wanted to get to the end of this too and just go to school and be normal have you watched back any of the footage from those interviews recently I recently one of the ones I watched you were being interviewed on US TV by Charlie Rose oh yeah I, I watched it and I had this real urge just to like it wasn't a very warm yeah I, did, I didn't realise it interview it was, it was 
confrontational is too strong a word, but it was a little bit, yeah. there was an edge to some of his yeah. questions. And I was looking at it going, oh my God, would someone just give that girl a hug, take yeah. her off the stage, away from the lights and just let her go and be a kid. And that's a hard thing for my parents was to, to kind of watch that, you know. And also like, is she going to say something that, might come back to bite her or, you know, or that'll have like a lasting impact on her life. Like I wasn't media trained. I didn't have like, you know, a publicity team. And these are the me. biggest shows. Like these weren't yeah. quirky little. Like CNN, yeah. you know, what's his name? Larry King, you know, and live sometimes live. And it's like, so now we have a caller from Serbia who wants to say this to you, you know, like that kind of stuff. And it's just sort of. I don't know how I did it. I don't know. I honestly don't know how I did it. Um, but yeah, it was. Now you you know, and now I look back on it and I go, "Whoa, that was that was quite a lot for for a, a thirteen year old." And also, really bad hair, really bad hair. <laughs> <laughs> but I didn't know, notice the yeah, hair. Yeah, the hair was. I, it's been it's been it's been called the Fra- Fred Savage, like the Wonder Years hair, and it truly is. Yeah. Tell me about the first time you went back to Sarajevo. After that. The first time was just so I moved to Ireland, yeah. uh, moved to transition, came here, it was transition year and went to school. And when that... First of all, on that, were you like the kid who wrote the book? Were you, were you you're a bit of a celebrity too strong a word, but would you have had a reputation? Yeah, but I'm, I, you know, in, in, in some way, like I, the MTV, which obviously was a big at the time, did this huge. thing where I had to, you know, I was drawing this kind of sign of peace in the sand and it was like an interstitial they would have had between music videos. So anyone who watched MTV would have seen that. Um, you okay, know, so well, straight that w- away, if you're the kid that's on MTV, yeah. you for status. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, that's kind of how people perceive. But I, I didn't really kind of... I don't think I connected. Like, I think that's maybe where my parents did a, a good job in a sort of like tidy up your room. And, yeah. you know, you know, there wasn't kind of a that's just a thing. It's a sort of tra- transient thing in your life. You know, you're not you. That's not you. That's not what you're kind of defined by. But others define you, obviously, because it's exciting because it's MTV. So the MTV kid is in your school. The So I went to school in France first. And then when we moved to Ireland, I loved Ireland and I always love Ireland. It was really like, oh, yeah, kind of you're one from MTV. Anyway, Oasis or Blur, you know, (laughs) I'm like Pearl Jam, please. They're like, okay, that's there's guys, there's people who, you know, like Pearl Jam. Um, So it was Ireland was very, you know, in the way Ireland can be like no notions kind of thing. And so it was very good for me in that sense. So it was just like, do you want to go to a gig? And uh, and it was yeah, that was really nice. Quite normal. Yeah. Yeah, And it was good. It was really good. Yeah. So going back to Sarajevo. So the first summer was uh, just after I finished transition year. So a peace agreement was signed literally just as we were moving here. You know, my grandfather died of pneumonia because of the war. We moved here and the peace agreement was signed. And that all happened within like a week. And this was another peace agreement. So we're like, yeah, 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 another peace agreement. But it was the one that ended the extreme conflict and fighting the Dayton peace agreement. And so we kind of went, okay, well, let's wait to see how this plays out. And then the first summer of finishing school, there was a flight going from Dublin to Split and then a bus going into Sarajevo. Um, Yeah, seeing my grandmother. I mean, the city wasn't, you know, a lot of that very 
obvious destruction had happened in the time that we were there. It's almost like there was not that much more to be destroyed. There's always more to be destroyed, but there hadn't kind of been as much. So the city didn't look vastly different. Obviously, some people were gone. My grandfather, you know, passed away. My mom's cousin was killed. You know, there were there were changes. Um, it was it was really nice. And, and I continued that relationship every summer from there onwards. You still go back? So I haven't been for a few years because of COVID. Um, and then having, I should have done it now, you know, when I had a, a, a two month old, I should have gone because now I realize, God, it's much harder to travel with a four year old than a two month old. But I didn't. Gets and then the COVID happened. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to going with her, you know, as well, you know, and also for her when she gets a sense of understanding what this place is to me, you know, yeah. so she's she knows she knows her mom's Bosnian, but, you know what that is she can identify Bosnia on a map um, but otherwise you know she doesn't obviously know any of this so there'll be a time when all this will you know pass on to her she saw a copy of the diary with my Fred Savage hair and <laughs> I was like who's that Ella and she's like mama uh, she knew it was you she recognized me yeah so that was good yeah I guess the face is sort of somewhat stayed hair is somewhat improved Zalada it's been a, a real pleasure to uh, to meet you this morning and I'm really really grateful that you came in to share your story with us thank, thank you. you so much thank you so we are back in my driveway back outside my house and do you know what with each guest I can't be the only one who does this my mind naturally wanders into thinking like what would I be like if I was in their shoes or how would I have handled the episode that they're describing but with Slata there I just find it it's almost not possible to mm. do that it's just too big what she's talking about is just too big and it's too much it's too overwhelming and some of the things she mentioned in particular like the conditions and the reality and the dilemmas her family faced and describing some of her memories in the way she did but then to also be really aware of and appreciative of and she was really keen to talk about like the phrase she used the best of humanity as she puts it in what was I assume, hell on earth at times. And you know what? In a funny way, Richard, I actually wasn't surprised that she also chose to highlight the best of humanity, as, as she put it, because that's exactly the kind of attitude that came through in her voice as a 13-year-old, a 12-year-old, despite what she was living through. Yeah, and when you know of her childhood in Sarajevo during the war, and we've seen footage of her as a kid on the US TV and elsewhere talking about her experiences and but then for her to be sitting in front of us, like alive and well here in Dublin, where she has her own family, she's a successful film producer, and she's just chatting to us all about what she's been through. I don't know, I don't have the words for that. It's it's scarcely believable. It's mm. incredible, really. Before we go, just a quick reminder that today's show is brought to you by Now, like this whole series. Signing up is really, really easy, and it means you'll be able to watch some brilliant Premier League matches in the coming weeks, as I mentioned earlier in the show. There's Man City v Liverpool, there's Man City v Tottenham, and Man U v Chelsea, to name just a few. And if you're a Munster or a Leinster fan, remember that the start of the Champions Cup season is just a fortnight away, with Leinster playing La Rochelle first up and Munster travelling to Exeter the following weekend. You can stream all that and more with the Now Sports member so why not give it a go that's it for another show thanks again to Zlata for coming into the studio and sharing her incredible story in the way she did I can't have been the only one that found it really really moving thanks as always to you Killian. thank you very much Richie and we've received some lovely emails so far about previous shows 
So please do get in touch. Episode at secondcaptains.com with any comments about the podcast or suggestions you might have about future guests. We really do appreciate them all. Episode is a Second Captains production and is part of the Acast Creator Network. Thanks for listening. We'll chat to you next week. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. The second captain. Second captain, first captain, whatever.